invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's going to be uh, the, uh, one of the first passages we go to tonight in our study. Before we get to uh, the study, I just want to say that we've really appreciated the invitation here and we've enjoyed our uh, time spent with all of you and being able to talk with the the few out of the number that uh, I've been able to so far, especially today, as we uh, enjoyed lunch together. Uh, we've especially appreciated the the singing out of the members here. It's been so very encouraging just uh, just for that alone, and it's uh, it's just been encouraging for us and, and a good weekend for us. Uh, so uh, with all that being said, let's just go ahead and get into the lesson. Again, if you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, there is... Uh, it's something that I like to do at Buckhorn. Uh, I, it's not really a series, but, but you can count on uh, kind of what we're about to go to the next week. I like to preach at least one lesson in every single book of the Bible. And there's a reason that I do that. For one, well, it's, it's, it's helpful scheduling-wise, but also I, I believe that it is not just an evangelist's duty to, to preach the whole counsel of God, but I think it's a responsibility collectively of every Christian to know the whole counsel of God. And it's very helpful for me if I make this uh, a habit and a routine to at least preach one lesson in each book. You're not going to be skipping books like, well, Song of Solomon or Ezekiel or Revelation, the ones that may be a little bit easier to, to kind of let go by the wayside just because they, they can tend to be difficult or maybe uncomfortable. Uh, maybe you, as you're reading through Song of Solomon, you see that very intimate language. Uh, and, and, and so I like to do that uh, for a few reasons. But also... Uh, I just think that the Old Testament is full with, with just beautiful riches that, that many Christians just simply have not uh, seen yet or, or just simply uh, kind of maybe uh, discount too soon or prematurely. And so tonight I'd like to just make the case for more Old Testament preaching as a whole uh, and, and really just talk about the importance of the Old Testament. Living under the New Covenant I think it's easy to brush away the old without thinking. Uh, it's easy to just think, well, we don't have to worry about those regulations anymore because we're not under those laws, we're not under that, those ordinances. Now we have to focus on the gospel. And, and I understand the old law is dead, don't get me wrong. But I don't think that, that Jesus would ever indicates, and I don't think that what we find throughout the scriptures is that um, it's, it's unimportant just because it's dead. I think there's still uh, very significant things that we're supposed to take from that and so and really when we do kind of brush away the old without thinking I want to suggest it, it hurts our ability to understand the New Testament and the Bible as a whole period uh, so tonight I want to just look at three reasons why the Old Testament is so important first of all maybe this is just the most obvious answer it is the Word of God it is the very will and revelation of God. What is revelation but that which has been revealed? And whether it be the prophets or, or the apostles who would write uh, the, the, the bulk of the New Testament, the gospels being written, this is God communicating to his creation. First of all, if you're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, what does it say in verse 16? But all scripture, that's not just talking about the New Testament, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It, it, if it is the word of God, just 
from the, from the get-go, I want to understand this. If it is the word of God. It has value, just period. And, and honestly, how brave, maybe not brave is the right word, but how maybe arrogant some might be to just act like this is something that I don't need when it's something that God's revealed. Uh, and, and, and as he talks about all of these things that the word of God does, the, ins- the inspiration of God, how it helps uh, in, in a teaching, it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that we may be fully equipped for every good work. How can you expect to be fully equipped without the knowledge of, of all of God's word, that which he meant for his people, his people to know? And so... Uh, if it, it has value, period, if it is thus says the Lord and not just man's opinion. Well, also, God says that the Old Testament just, I think, very directly is for you and me. Over in Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, and this is really probably the, the thematic verse for, for the lesson tonight. Romans 15 and verse 4, Paul says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so very clearly, it's not like this is left in the realm of, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. God has made it clear time and time again that this is for us. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a little bit more of a lengthy reading, but I just I want to, I want to look at what Paul says over uh, to, to the Christians in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, he uses the Old Testament as an example. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most, uh, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us... Act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. As an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Two different places where where Paul makes clear, this was written for me and you. This is written for even Christians to know the Old Testament, to know even the parts like Leviticus. You know, we come to Leviticus and and, and it's a lot of rules. It's a lot of uh, ordinances of God. And when we get to that in our our yearly Bible reading, maybe we just kind of think, oh, I'm just going to have to drudge through this. This is going to be a kind of a long month or maybe just a long week going through this. But... I don't think that we have to necessarily come at it that way. I hope to make the case tonight that we can actually uh, come to even a portion like Leviticus where we have to read through a bunch of laws and find some excitement there. Uh, obviously, first of all, because it is God's word. But look at what, it's, uh, what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. We know this uh, verse very well because it has uh, something to say, I think, about God's authority. And, and our place in that. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Therefore, it's not really for us. But what belongs to us? He says, the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. The things revealed that God has given, his revelation is for us. And why is it? So that we may observe all the words of this law. 
He has given us exactly what we need to be pleasing to him, to be fully pleasing to him. He's given us exactly what we need to become a part of his people, to be a part of his kingdom. He's given us, given us exactly what we need to have salvation. Uh, and that is important not to forget. But I would just say, sometimes I think people look at the Old Testament and almost think that, at least imply by what they're saying, that God didn't really reveal these things for a reason. I mean, we, I've even heard Christians say, listen, if we didn't have the Old Testament, we'd be fine. I don't know. I think God gave it to us. I think the very fact that he gave it to us today in the, in the 21st century, the fact that we were able to read from the law of Moses all the way to the New Testament, I don't think that was just arbitrary. God never does things randomly. And who is, is willing to suggest that he does just do something just willy-nilly? That's not how God does everything for a reason. And I think he has revealed this to us for a reason as well. And that he has given it to us uh, in such um, uh, really readily accessible ways. You don't even have to buy a paperback Bible, although I think you should. But you can just download a free app on your phone or your iPad. It's that easy. And I think uh, some of that has to do with the providence of God. I don't think that God reveals things for no reason at all. Well, finally, with this point, God expected his people to honor his word and hold it fast. Over in Psalm 19, and I, and I really appreciate the songs that have been led this weekend. I, I, I think that all of them have had to, much to do with the lessons that we've been going over. And, and that hymn, I just absolutely love. Because I absolutely love this song. It, there's so much beauty written in it. And I love how David looks at the law. Look at what he says about the law of Moses. Psalm 19, <clears throat> beginning in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You recall this because we just sang it. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And what does it do? It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You, you see how he talks about Leviticus? <laughs> I really do believe that when he says, oh, when he talks about the law in such lofty ways, I think he means it. When we talk about you know, certain parts of the Old Testament, like Leviticus, we just say, this is just, I'm so glad that I am not a Jew, right? Have you ever heard somebody say that? I'm so glad we're not a To a degree, I kind of understand that because the gospel is better. It's a better covenant. But, but I don't think the point that God wanted us to get as we read through some of the, the laws of the offerings, the sacrifices that the people were to give, I don't think that God meant for us to take from that, oh, I'm just so, that, that, that sounds yucky, and I, and I don't really want a part of that. I think there's something much deeper that he wanted us to learn. Just like we talked about earlier this morning in Leviticus chapter 18, there's a very physical application there that you do what God says and you obey his law, then you will prolong the days of your life. But it, it wasn't supposed to stop at the physical application. And Jesus quoting that passage just reveals the true meaning, the ultimate intended application, which was, you do, my, you do what I say, you obey my word, and you be my people truly, you will have life eternal, spiritual. And so there, there's so much more than I think we give credit uh, to, to be taken from the, from the, the law and the Old Testament uh, than, than, I, than, again, as I said, as we, than we often give credit. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 12, one of the most heartbreaking passages I think you can read. 
Hosea is a beautiful prophecy as you read through it. But, but as you get, go through just how far Israel has gotten, God's children, his people, how far they have gone. One of the things he says in Hosea chapter 8 and verse 12 is that though I've written 10,000 precepts of my law, that's a lot. They consider it a strange thing. So much he had given them. And in Romans, Paul would make the case that, listen, you were blessed more than many because you were given the law. You had this revelation. You wasted it. And how we can waste it at times as well. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 6. From the very, uh, before they enter the promised land, he wants them to act a certain way and, 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 and hold this law Fast, As we said a moment ago, in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What does that mean? It better be everywhere in your life. You know, when you're walking by the wayside and when you go down to... Every single moment you should be contemplating, meditating on these things. Uh, and I would dare say that, that um, they did not. I, I would like to suggest that I don't think they did, and that is why they went further and further away and looked just like the nations that God was warning them not to look like. Now, again, with all this being said, someone might, might still say, well, listen, we don't have to do these things anymore. We don't have to pay attention because they, they have no part in our lives. Where do you find the scripture that says we can just do away with what God has revealed? Honestly, I don't find any, I don't find any implication. I certainly don't find any direct statement. Rather, hopefully, as I've made the case through this point, we see that God says this is something that I want you to know and I want you to learn from. And not only know, but I want you to appreciate it. And I think Israel uh, throughout the Old Testament showed that they did not appreciate it. Well, not only is it the word of God, but it is also the foundation of the New Testament. If you take away the Old Testament, there's so much of the New Testament that you're going to struggle to understand. And there's already some places like Revelation that, that's kind of hard to understand. Let me tell you, you won't understand it if you don't know the Old Testament. And the Old Testament gives New Testament passages uh, context. Look at what it says in Jude 11. In Jude 11... He says, woe to them, as he's talking about the false teachers that are coming in and, and false prophets. He says, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, I would just ask, do you know where all three of those uh, stories are in the Old Testament? I would like to suggest that I think he writes this in such a way that suggests he expects that this is going to be known by the people who are reading this letter. He doesn't give any context to it. He just expects that the people knew it. And I think that they would have because they were supposed to know the, the scriptures that they had been given. All of the Old Testament. Uh, from the beginning, from Adam to David to Malachi, to the end of the prophets. And, and you know, obviously, I, I think we're pretty familiar with Cain. That's not that hard. This is the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. But then you have, and I, I didn't mean to do this, but every single sermon this weekend, I actually mentioned Balaam. So, if you, haven't, if you don't know where that is, well then, maybe, I don't know if you've been paying attention. No, but, but it's in Numbers chapter 22, and we've referenced that several times. You see that story of, of a man who really, for vainglory and the promise of, of more riches, after being told what God wants him to do, 
He tries to toe the line, as we said this morning. And there's so much from that story that we can gain, but, but we will lose all the value of it if we don't know it. And especially as you read what Jude is trying to say, he's, he's using these examples for a purpose. Uh, I don't think that, again, that, that, that they use examples uh, just so that people would come away confused or kind of think, you know, well, that's kind of vague. I wonder what he means. No, there's a reason that in Revelation, Jesus says to the, to the church in Pergamum, you need to beware because you're walking after the way of Balaam. Don't be so focused on that vainglory. Don't be so focused on those kinds of riches. And they would have understood that. And so in many cases, the, the Old Testament gives New Testament uh, passages more context. And it helps us understand maybe what exactly that story was supposed to mean all along. Uh, thinking about Revelation. Uh, Revelation, there's all kinds of apocalyptic language throughout that, throughout that last book in our Bibles. Now, I would just say that Revelation is not the only place with, with apocalyptic langu language, but let me just tell you, the Old Testament is, is, there's apocalyptic language all throughout. Daniel, throughout much of the prophets, if you have not read through Daniel I, or Ezekiel or Exodus, I would suggest you probably wouldn't understand Revelation very well because there are, I found this interesting as, as I was uh, learning this, there are 402 verses in Revelation. An estimate suggests that 350, at least, to around 400 quotations are from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel, Exodus, and, and Daniel. And, and so, I, I, again, I, maybe I'm beating a dead horse, but I really believe that, that if you don't know this kind of language, if you haven't become familiar with this and read through this, then you are going to be way behind if you try to just start uh, reading Revelation without any background knowledge. Again, I think that they were meant to understand a few things before they actually read through these letters. They had that history because it was their history already in their minds. And so it gives context to New Testament passages. Well, going beyond that, I think if you take away the Old Testament, you lose foundational and edifying evidences. As we've been talking about prophecy, I think that that is one of the most encouraging things that we can take up. Daniel, as we were just talking about a moment ago, is so accurate in the predictions of the rise and fall of nations. Uh, it is so incredibly accurate that skeptics, some skeptics, have tried to change, uh, have, they've tried to act like some of the writings of Daniel were actually written after the fact. Really, it's just they're, writing, they're recording what has happened in history instead of prophesying what is to come. And why do they do that? Because it is so incredibly accurate. And, oh, well, of course this can't, of course, this couldn't have been a, a supernatural instance. Of course, this couldn't have been a, a moment where, where we actually see some kind of divine revelation. And so they try to change it because it is so incredibly compelling when you read through the, the passages in Daniel. Not only that, but you find messianic uh, passages throughout the Old Testament in prophecy. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so, you know, it's something that maybe we would just kind of brush over as we're reading through the prophet Micah. But here is just one instance, maybe of somewhat of a subtle uh, of a subtle messianic message, but it sure does mean a lot when you find that Jesus, the Messiah, does fulfill that prophecy. And really, as you study uh, about you know, a prophecy, it, it is so important that all of these things were fulfilled because if they weren't, 
then what that suggests is there was some kind of failure. Or what that suggests is maybe Jesus wasn't who he said he was. The problem is, though, he did fulfill every one of those prophecies. And we have, we have the recorded word. We have the revelation of God to, to go to and say, look at this and tr- just try to tear this down. Because I can go back to the Old Testament where centuries before, millennia before, this was predicted. And see, so you're really going to come at me and say that this is just a coincidence? Especially so often? I don't think so. And so there, there's so much that I think we take away when it comes to just the evidences of, of proving Scripture, the, the historicity of Scripture and, and the, the existence of God. Beyond that, you find prophecies of the Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. Psalm 22, for example, you find a few verses there that are actually quoted by Jesus. Not only that, you look at Isaiah 53. And again, another portion of scripture that is predicting what it's going to look like when that Messiah comes. Even though much of the Jews would kind of get this confused and they would kind of think more, uh, in a much more physical way instead of the spiritual, they still had these por- portions of scripture like this that did show what was going to happen. They didn't want the Messiah to come to earth to die, but that is what the Messiah did. And he did so for a purpose. And you see that clearly defined in Isaiah 53 as one is sacrificed for others. One is crushed for the good of others. So many things that we can point to uh, for encouragement and, and, and for evidences that I think we take away if we try to take away the importance of the Old Testament. Well, this is a point that I'm excited to go through uh, because as I was trying to go through this outline. I had, this isn't the exact outline that I've preached before. I kind of changed it up a little bit. And, and this point was just very exciting to me. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I really like going through the Old Testament and seeing Jesus as much as I can and seeing uh, what the connections we're supposed to make today. Uh, and, and I do think that if you try to take away the Old Testament, what you're doing is losing parts of the gospel. Now, I want to make that case. Go over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, as the writer is is talking at the very end of chapter 3 about Israel as they wandered through the wilderness after they had gone through the exodus and been delivered from Egypt by God. It talks about their failure towards the end as uh, as they were about to go into the promised land. They didn't have to wander that 40 years, but because of their unbelief, as it says in verse 19, they were not able to enter that rest. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And it's interesting, I would just pause for a moment. It's interesting to see that, that he's making a connection between their circumstance and our circumstance. But in verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard for we who who have believed enter that rest just as he has said as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day and God rested on the seventh day from all his works and again in this passage they shall not enter my rest verse six therefore since it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. And we'll stop there. But there's two times that he he uses the words good news. And what does the gospel mean? But good news. It is the good news. Now, 
you actually see the words that, that are used here in, in Hebrews chapter 4 translated in a different way throughout the New Testament. Uh, and, and so over in Luke chapter 3, as John is uh, preaching about repentance and he's preaching about the coming kingdom, it says that so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. It, that's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 4 that we just saw, good news. And again, that's synonymous. That's what it means. Uh, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, <clears throat> another example, Paul is speaking, uh, and, and as he's talking about uh, his boasting, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the good news. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted, uh, but, if, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And I, let me tell you, there are several other passages where it is translated as gospel or, or preaching the gospel. And so, and maybe your translation even, even uh, has it rendered as, as the good news. But all that just being said, it's the same Greek word. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, when the writer is talking about making this connection between them entering their rest and they could not because of unbelief, what is he warning us of? Well, we're not waiting for a promised land. Aren't we, though? Aren't we waiting for rest? Aren't we striving for a promised land that God has said he would give to those who follow after his son, who become a part of his kingdom, that heavenly rest? that we all yearn for over in first uh, Peter chapter one. I think this is one of the uh, most helpful verses as it comes to trying to, to, to make this case that I think the, the old Testament all throughout contains the gospel. Look at what Peter says about the prophets. What did they preach over first Peter chapter one, beginning in verse 10, it says as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Why did they make these inquiries? Why were they searching? They were seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffer sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is something that is so intriguing, so interesting. That the prophets, as they were receiving some revelation from God, they understood, uh, they understood some things about the Messiah. Now, they didn't have the full revelation of God, as we do. And so they didn't understand everything that we can today, because they were still waiting on that Messiah. But they wanted to know what that, what that Christ would look like. They wanted to know what time it was coming. And, oh, why is it that John... Is, is so uh, is praised by Jesus as the greatest of the prophets, greatest born among women. Well, because he is the prophet that actually is preparing the way of the Lord. Why is he the greatest? It's not because he himself you know, deserves any more honor than the rest who have worked very hard in the, in the kingdom, of, in, in the servitude of God, in the service of God, but it is because he is the one in the presence of the Messiah that they've all been waiting for this entire time. And this whole time, in a sense, the gospel has been being preached. And that's one of my hobbies is, is looking through, especially Isaiah. You see time and time again, gospel messages. Just, just It pervades that book. And it pervades the Old Testament. 
And so there are several connections to be made as we think about, uh, as we think about that gospel message. So though not fully revealed, the gospel was being preached in the Old Testament. And so, yes, if we leave the Old Testament, I think we're leaving behind parts of the gospel. Now, I hope that I made that case clearly, and it's not clear as butter. But hopefully, uh, if, if there's any questions, you can come to me afterwards. But, but all of this just to say, I think that the Old Testament's value only increases as you come to the New Testament and you read about the, the new covenant and what we are expected to do by the Father, by God. Though we live under the new covenant, I would like to suggest that God has not changed. Uh, over in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, you might recall that this is uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. As you read the first few verses there, there's a just crowds, multitudes of people that have come to listen to Jesus. And he begins by going through what we call the Beatitudes, these, these blessings that come on certain people. Now, what you find throughout the Sermon on the Mount really is, is what people of God's kingdom are going to look like, what citizens of the kingdom are going to look like, the characteristics that they are going to, to, in, uh, that they are going to uh, develop, what they should look like and how they should act and the, the motivations that they should have. In that sermon, in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, look at what Jesus says about the law. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now please, again, just let me make, make this clear. I'm not saying that, I understand, the old law is dead. And it's been put to death because we have a better covenant and we have a better sacrifice and we have a better high priest. But ultimately, look at how Jesus talks about the law. He doesn't talk about it the way sometimes I think many Christians do. In such a disparaging way, saying, oh, we don't need it. Oh, it has no value. Oh, let those words never come out of our mouths. To speak of it in such a way that suggests that it really is not important or significant. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. So what are we trying to do brushing it aside and having nothing to do with it? Continuing on in, in verse 19, Jesus proceeds to actually use the law to instill these qualities of kingdom citizens. Beginning in verse 19, he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what does he do? He begins quoting the law of Moses. He does. And he never says, listen, <laughs> you, you really don't need this. You never really needed this. This is what you need to know. When he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's not saying that God's word was you know, wrong or it was off. What he's saying is, you have heard it said by people who have corrupted the law, this, that, and the other. But I'm telling you, it needed to go deeper than the surface. Kind of like what we were talking about this morning. It wasn't supposed to, or, or, or last night, it wasn't supposed to just be that you, you know, only don't lie. No, I'm asking that you be truly honest people. It shouldn't just be that you don't commit adultery. You shouldn't even look at another woman and lust after her in your heart. Because that is too far. Don't just think that God was saying, you know, as, if you just make your checklist and you check all the boxes, you're going to be fine. He wanted it to affect your heart. He wanted it to affect your very being. 
It was supposed to go deeper than the surface. And you were supposed to try and learn the, the, the spiritual applications to these things. So you've heard the, Pharise- the, the corruptions of the Pharisees. But I'm telling you, this is what the law always intended. And, and he's telling that to people who want to become kingdom citizens under the new covenant. Now, all of that just to say there were eternal truths being taught from the holiness that God expected. When he says in Exodus chapter 19 and verses 5 through 6 that you, I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be a holy people. And you are to reflect my holiness. Do you think that that sentiment changes in the New Testament? Do you think that God no longer cares about us being holy? Or do you think that he is just wanting us to continue that thought that I want you to reflect my holiness when it comes to the purity, when it comes to, to how uh, much those priests would have to work to make sure that they were clean to, to, to uh, per- participate in the temple worship and, and to give the sacrifices, these offerings. Do you think that that level of dedication is supposed to be forgotten in the new covenant? No, I think that's one of those eternal truths. You, uh, uh, another thing that's interesting is a couple of times, and we talked about this already uh, as well in, in Luke chapter 10, when the lawyer comes up, and then there's a rich young ruler that comes up to Jesus. They, they say, well, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Or they say, how do I receive eternal life? What is, what, what is Jesus' answer? The greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you think that changes when you get to the new covenant? Are we no longer supposed to care about putting God first and then loving neighbor as self? What does Paul say in Romans and in Galatians? But love fulfills the law. And he starts this list of of the fruit of the spirit with love. Because I think all of these things culminate in the love, the greatest commandments. And I don't think that changes just because we've come under a new covenant. This is a better covenant, but it's it's not because, you know, the old covenant was bad. It's because now we have Jesus. And I think that is, out of all of these things, the greatest eternal truth, which is that this is all pointing to Jesus. When you read the prophecies of the Old Testament, when you read Genesis 1-1, what you are seeing is, is what Jesus will look like and what the impact that Jesus will have in our lives. And we'll talk about Genesis 1-1 in, in just a moment. But going over to Luke chapter 24. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24. After Jesus has been put to death, after he has res- been resurrected and beaten death, he, go- he is, uh, uh, puts himself before many, and there are many witnesses that see his risen body. And he, after being put through all of this, just continues what he has always done, even before his death, but just continues teaching and preaching. In verse 27 of Luke chapter 24, there was two uh, people that he was walking with, two men uh, on the road to Emmaus, and they don't, they don't fully understand still the gospel message, that what the Messiah was supposed to suffer and what the Messiah was supposed to do, and even the disciples won't, which we'll get to. But in verse 27, as he was trying to explain these things to them, well, let's begin in verse 25. They, they still could not see. And it says that he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Luke, or, or with Acts, that's not where he starts. It says, beginning with Moses, the law. And with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so this really has to do with the last point that we were going through uh, about, I think, the gospel being a part of the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Because every single verse is pointing to him. 
And I just think that's amazing. I, I'm sorry. I just think that's fascinating. And it just shows this is the masterful plan that God had since before the foundation of the earth. And how, and how no one, no one stunted that plan. No one hindered it. They just did exactly as God had, had, had planned from the very beginning and really had foretold in, 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 uh, you know, through many ways, maybe subtly or maybe like we talked about in Isaiah chapter 53, maybe very direct ways. Even with all of this revelation, no one could hinder that plan. Going down to verse 47, or I'm sorry, verse 44, as he's talking to uh, the disciples, it says, he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And guess what? They were. From Psalm 22, from Isaiah 53, from Genesis 3. When at the fall, when at the first sin and death entered the earth, what did God say? But there will be one who will crush the serpent's head. You will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. And all that's being fulfilled in Jesus. And it is just so fascinating to me. There's so many things that you see in the Old Testament that show just the beauty of the gospel, that show the servitude of the servant the servant songs in, throughout Isaiah, that show the sacrifice of this Messiah that was going to come, that show the kingship of this Messiah. And that's what the Messiah means, the Lord's anointed. There's so many connections, and I don't want to get distracted from, from the outline. But in, over in Colossians 1, I think Paul put, makes it very clear. There were mysteries throughout the Old Testament. There were hidden treasures that are ultimately revealed and found in Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 25, he says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for, uh, from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. There was a mystery as you read through the Old Testament, but Jesus becomes the key that unlocks the, the, the mystery. That, that He is the full revelation of God. And so what I think is expected of us is to see Jesus on every page. The, Tommy Peeler, who is another man that I greatly respect and I think just another very great Bible teacher, one thing that he said that I thought was beautiful is he was going through Leviticus. As he said, one time someone asked me, uh, can you give me just a, a compilation of the verses of the Old Testament that talk about Jesus? And he simply said, if you lack one verse in the Old Testament, then it's a list too short. And I just thought, amen. <laughs> Can't say it any better. So I'm not going to add to that. I think that there is so much beauty that, that I think many Christians have not seen, maybe because they have such a poor uh, view of the Old Testament. I wish that we had uh, time to go through just some of the connections or some more connections. But as we close, I'm sure that a better case for moral testament preaching could have been made. And, and I, but I would just say, with all that being said, if the fact that this is God's word isn't evidence enough for me, then there's a problem. And the problem is not the word, but it's me. It's my understanding. The word of God is powerful. It is sufficient. And from beginning to end, it is the only thing we find that can bring salvation. Now, 
I said I was going to get back to Genesis chapter 1. Even Genesis chapter 1 in verse 1. You know, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Even that is very impactful for us today. In, in the beginning, what you see is the word bringing all creation into existence. Just by the word, something comes from nothing, right? By God's very powerful word. Even that has great impact on, on our salvation today. Because look at what we learn in John chapter 1 and verse 1. How does John begin? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Then you get to verse 14, and what does he say? That word's been manifested, and it is Jesus Christ. And so today, it is still only by his word that we find salvation, that we become a new creation, born again. Through his son, the word that brings life and salvation. You've heard that word today. Will you receive it? Will you heed it and repent of all the things that it condemns? Will you accept it and make the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? And will you obey it and be baptized into Christ's death for the remission of sins? If you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known as we stand and as we say.